You can be seated. Glad you're here today. Uh, we are in the middle of a celebration. We've been celebrating our 10-year anniversary. We started this church, really began the work uh, gathering uh, on Sunday night, uh, January 13th, 2008. It's crazy to me that we're here, that we're at this stage, but it's been um, a great journey. We've gotten to see, we've been privy to see God do some pretty amazing things. And we started this celebration uh, really first week of January or the first Sunday of January um, as we talked about the worship and mission multiplication, seeking to see what God has done among us and in us uh, multiply, not, not just multiply beyond us. So yes, multiply beyond us, but multiply, just continue to, that he would continue to do his work, that his glory would be more glorious to us, that our lives would reflect his worship, that we would honor him more today than we did yesterday, and that we would live to worship him more uh, tomorrow than we do today. And so that's really been the focus of the celebration. We, we, we then transitioned last week. Lane came and preached and called us to devotion. Like, this is not going to happen without God working, but on the, uh, on the same token, at the same time, it doesn't happen without us devoting ourselves to it. And he talked to us from Acts 2, 42 through 47. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, you know that that was a foundational, formational passage for us as a church. And, and so it was fitting that that's where he came to us or spoke to us from. And we're just continuing on in this call. We're not taking on a new focus. We're not taking on a new, new uh, we're not trying to brand ourselves differently or we're just doubling down on what we have always been about, the gospel. Because of the gospel, we are no longer sinners. We are saints. We are no longer aliens. We are citizens of God's kingdom. Because of the gospel, we're no longer strangers to him. We are sons and daughters of God most high. We are sons and daughters of the king. We have access to the God who said, let there be light. And the light couldn't help but shine. It had to shine. It didn't have a choice but to shine. We have access to the God who is almighty and powerful and all he says he can do. We have access to the God who is able to accomplish all he's promised to accomplish. We have access to the God who loves us deeply, intensely, and truly. We have access to him because of the gospel. Because of the gospel, we are who we are individually. We have this new identity as saints and citizens and sons and daughters. And we are who we are corporately. We are the church. We are members of capital C church and members together of little c, local church because of the gospel. It is the one uh, uh, it is the one attribute required. We must be made alive in the gospel. And when we are, we are made members of his people. Because of the gospel, we are who we are individually. We are who we are corporately. We are the church. As much as this gospel identifies us, as much as this gospel uh, uh, forms us and shapes us and, and determines who we now are. It also determines and defines what we now do. Because of the gospel, we worship and lead others to worship Jesus. We don't do this to earn our place before him. We do this because we've, given, we've been given place before him. We don't do this to prove ourselves to him. I'm going to worship him enough that finally he'll accept me. We worship him because we have been accepted by him. This is simply a response to who God is and what God has done. 
And it starts internally. It starts with who we are. But because we see this is the best for us, we seek to lead others to it, to see his glory. This is the very idea, the very premise that we've been founded on. It's not, it's not just intended to be some catchy phrase. It's not some, to, to be some throwaway statement. Well, we put it on our church documents at one point, and now we just go do what churches do. That's not the, that's not the idea. This is the very central theme of everything we do. There's not a decision that's made. There's not a thought that's had. I, can, I, I, I think I can say this for, for the elders. I, I know that I can say it for myself. As I seek to lead this church, this is my great desire. That you see God's glory and you respond appropriately. That you join with me as much as you're able, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to worship our great God who loved you and sent his son for you. At the end of the day, if, 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 that's, if that's what we give our lives to, then we're giving our lives, we're giving our very beings to the very central theme of what God's mission is and has been since the foundation of the world. He has always been working to show his glory and calling people to see his glory and respond appropriately. The great sin that gives way to every other sin, the great sin that that bore out the fruit of suffering and injustice and shame, the great sin that started it all was a worship, was, was wrong worship. It was worship of the creation and not the creator. And since the very beginning, in the moment of sin and, and God interacting with the sinful people, he was promising a Messiah who would come and enable right and true worship. It's the central theme of all the scriptures. That God would be glorified in and among and beyond his people. And in the gospel, our lives and our worship are reoriented around this idea. Redirected, uh, redirecting our worship to God the Father. Worshiping the creator as we enjoy his creation in the right context, in the right ways. We're not talking about worship in a narrow sense, like, okay, well, I came to worship. I sang some songs. I'm glad you did. And I do believe we've worshiped. We've praised him. We've honored him. But worship is so much more than a 15, 20-minute set of songs on a Sunday morning. When we speak about worship, most often when we speak about worship, we are talking about worship in a fuller sense. We're we're talking about an awe, an adoration, a a devotion. This internal reality, this internal compunction, a, a, a reverence and a gratitude that gives way to a life of adoration, devotion, and obedience. I said that wrong. I'm sorry. I was excited and not looking at my notes. Awe, this internal awe, recognizing God for who he is. Reverence, exalting him to be who he is, having a right fear of him, a right respect for him, gratitude. It never fails. When I walk with people through difficulty and struggle and the things that they're struggling with, it never fails that somewhere in it you can find a place in which they are not grateful for for all that God has already done. And they're focusing on all that they think they still deserve. Never fails. It happens in every one of us. That's why Paul said in Romans 1 that they did not honor God or give thanks to him as God. Because at the heart of it all, 
We're not revering him. We're not expressing gratitude the way we should. And, and because we don't have these inter- internal uh, convictions and compulsions, because we don't have this all this reverence, this gratitude, most of us and many of them, the, the, the world has gone to adore other things, to devote themselves to other things, to obey other things. This worship that we're calling each other to, this worship that, 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 that I want to give my life to and I want to call you to give your life to is an awe and a reverence and a gratitude that gives way to adoration of God most high through the gospel. A, a devotion to God most high through his son Jesus and obedience to God most high through the power that he bestows upon us in the Holy Spirit. That, I think, is the central theme, the central call of the Scripture because God's mission is to multiply His worship. Through the gospel, our gospel mission, then, is to multiply worship among us and beyond us, to to worship and lead others to worship. And we qualify that with a few statements. We unite in this mission. We unite in this gospel mission of worship as members of Christ's family. We unite in this. This doesn't mean we see everything eye to eye because we all have different experiences. We, we have all seen different things go right and we've all seen different things go wrong. We have these ideas, we have these experiences and we live out of these experiences and it's a good thing. It's, it's a diversity that allows us to have a fuller picture of how the world works. So we don't see everything eye to eye, but we unite in this mission. We, we, it doesn't mean that, the, that, that we are always going to be exactly the same, although we are uh, uh, living in a very homogenous culture where it's, I think it's like 98% white. There's a lot of diversity, a lot of difference, even sitting in this room, socioeconomic difference, male, female difference, age difference. There's all kinds of diversity sitting in this room, even though it's not the diversity that's commonly spoken about. I do long to see a greater level of racial diversity. I do long for that. I do want that. But that's not the end-all, be-all. That's not the only type of diversity that we see that we still have to work towards unity in. We unite in this because we have one gospel that's united us in one faith and one baptism, one spirit and one savior and one God and father. And it's for his one purpose that he might be glorified. Uniting together, fighting for this unity, that's an act of worship. That's worship. A living worship. We unite in this mission of worship as members together of Christ's family. We serve one another selflessly with God, given gifts and abilities to his glory, not for our own credit. If you're doing it so that you can get the pat on the back, if you can make a name for yourself, if you can get the credit, then you're not serving one another selflessly. You get that, right? We serve one another selflessly with God-given gifts and abilities to his glory. Leading others to worship doesn't start in the world. It starts right here. We serve with our time. That means we give time to one another. We serve with our treasure. That means we use money together for God's glory among his people. I said this the other night. Blessed immensely this year as we prepared to go to Africa. And Amy and I had a large sum of money to come to come up with. Two of us. And I wasn't the only one blessed because I know that the other two, two team members were also blessed immensely by the gifts of this people who sent us on mission 
who sent us to Africa so that we could proclaim the gospel and do God's work there. We serve one another with our time, with our treasure. We serve one another with our talents. Do you realize that you have strengths that I need? I desperately need you. That's why the other night at our, at our night of worship, I reiterated over and over, maybe even to a fault, this is not Seth's work. This is not Seth's church. We are who we are. We are a church today because we are taking part in serving one another with the, the, the gifts and the abilities that God has given us. Even this, as we serve each other selflessly, is an act of worship. As we do it to his glory, we worship him. We proclaim the gospel to advance his kingdom and multiply his worship. Again, it's not about us getting a name for ourselves in the world. If we've done it for ourselves, if we've called people to follow us and never called them to follow Christ, this is not his worship. We proclaim his gospel to advance his kingdom, to multiply his worship. Listen, we don't deny the importance of social interaction and the relief of social stress and suffering. We don't deny the importance of going into the world and seeking to make a difference. Everywhere Jesus went, he made it better. And he asked for nothing in return. He gave and he gave and he gave. We see that in his ministry, serving uh, uh, the, the, the poor. He, he, in fact, Luke 4, he talks about coming to preach and proclaim the gospel to the poor, to relieve oppression. But if all we do is serve people for this life, then we've, all we've done is pave their way to endure the wrath of God for eternity. The gospel message must at some point be spoken. It is a message that will be misinterpreted if we don't speak it. You know, the, the old saying that uh, preach the gospel always when necessary use words, that's rubbish. There's a lot of people out there in the world doing good works to make themselves look good. They've got a noble cause. But it's not a gospel cause. The gospel is a message, that, and that means it must be made known by speaking it. And the scriptures tell us they can't believe it if they don't hear it. They can't hear it if we don't speak it. So we proclaim the gospel to advance his kingdom and multiply his worship. Do you know what that is? Worship. When we give ourselves to these things, when we pursue these things, we are giving ourselves to a life of worship. Well, how are we going to organize it? How are we going to seek to organize this? How are we going to seek to, to implement this? How are we going to seek to see it built out in our church? How are we going to pursue these things Together, what's the strategy that we'll adopt to see it accomplished? So a gospel mission demands a gospel strategy. We, we, here's the mission. How are we going to get there? So we seek to follow the same example that Christ has set in the pattern that was established first by him and then followed by the apostles as they continued in his mission. We're going to seek to multiply worship by making disciples, by maturing disciples, and by mobilizing disciples. When we make disciples, mature disciples, mobilize disciples, then we can trust God to do what he's going to do and multiply his worship among his disciples. As the number of disciples increase, 
His worship is multiplied. As our hearts are more fully given to him, his worship is increased. And we're going to go over these things in more detail over the next three weeks. That's the intent of the rest of this time, this celebration of these 10 years. But I want you to see now, this is, this is we're, we're not doing anything new. We don't need to get another wheel to put on. We, we just need to use the ones we've been given. We don't need a whole other tool. We don't, we, don't, we don't need the. What we need to do is make our lives about what God has called us to do. Worship him. Worship him. Uniting in his mission to make, mobilize, and mature disciples. Worship him as we serve one another to make, mature, and mobilize disciples. Worship him by proclaiming the gospel to make mature and mobilize disciples so that his worship is multiplied. And as we grow internally, as we grow in our own hearts, we'll grow together as a people in worship. And as we grow together as a people in worship, we will trust God to do what he said he's going to do and multiply his worship, not just among us, but beyond us. Today, yes, we are, I am going to preach from the Bible. Sorry for the long introduction. Today, we're going to focus on making disciples. We're going to be in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. <clears throat> it's an important time in the life of Christ, in the life of the disciples. Jesus has died and ascended. He's appeared to a number of people already. This is the first day uh, uh, of the week. This is that first Easter morning, and, and he has already appeared to, to some of the women, to Peter. He's appeared to, to some disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus. And the disciples are gathered in a room, and they're scared because of the Jews. And Jesus shows up among them. This is what happens Beginning in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now the idea here, peace be with you, he's like, he's not, this is like we show up and we say, hey, how you doing? And then we don't really wait for an answer. In fact, if somebody starts to answer, we're like, hey, I didn't really want to know. I just expected you to tell me you're good and then say to me, how am I doing? And I can say good and we can move on. I don't think that's how Jesus operates. When I, I hear Jesus say this, this idea of peace, this idea of shalom, he is bestowing on them a blessing. Because of the gospel, they now have peace with God, a real substantial peace, which is interesting because in the midst of their circumstance, they're afraid of the Jews. They've got trouble around them. Their leader has been killed. They've heard stories of his body and being missing. Some of them are saying that he's alive, and what, this sounds pretty tumultuous, and he's saying, peace be with you. He doesn't tie his peace to their circumstance. He ties their peace to his presence. Peace be with you, he says. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Now, to get a fuller picture of what's going on here, so just, just imagine, here we are standing here, and all of a sudden Jesus pops up in the middle of the room. Like you didn't see him walk through a door. You didn't see him come in from another, another place. He just pops up in the middle of the room. I, I, I'm imagining that these guys were kind of afraid. What is going on? Is he a ghost? Is he an apparition? Is, who, who is this? And he identifies himself. He shows him his hands and his side. 
so that they know who he is. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. When they saw the scars, when they saw his, the hole in his side and the scars in his hands where he had been nailed to the cross, they were glad, they rejoiced, they were celebrating. He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. The circumstances outside are still raging. Peace be with you. It's tied to his presence. As the Father, listen, this is important. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. To be Christian is to be sent by Jesus to make disciples that make disciples that multiply Jesus' worship. This is exactly what he's commanding them to. This is exactly what he's establishing in this very first time where he is showing himself to his apostles as they are gathered, to his disciples as they are gathered. He is commissioning them to go. He is commissioning them to, to go and make disciples. The world we live in, fallen into sin, worshiping the creation rather than the creator, will, will not find God on its own. It cannot find God on its own. No one is seeking God. They're seeking something that they don't have a clue of. They're incapable. They have no capacity to find him without him revealing himself. God has always been the initiator in this from the very beginning. He's always been the initiator. He has always been the one working to make himself known in the world to the point that he ultimately sends Jesus. He sends Jesus, who, who we find out through the scripture that Jesus is the ultimate expression, the ultimate expression of God the Father. He tells his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus standing there, as the ultimate expression, as the living word of God. He tells his disciples, in the same way I have been sent by the Father, I am sending you. You see, Jesus' mission, whether, whether it is healing the sick or casting out demons, preaching and teaching the gospel, whatever we saw him doing, it was always to call people to repentance and faith so that they could rejoice and worship God. He did it all. He said it over and over to bring glory to the Father. It's an act of worship to lead others to worship him. This was the mission. And this is the mission that he now sends us on, that he sends his followers on. We don't, we don't have time to, to do it today. If you go back and just think, you think through what we've walked through in Luke, you, you read the other gospel accounts of Jesus' life. This is the way he did it. He made disciples. He said, come and follow me. And he matured those disciples. He taught them. And he showed them the truth from the scriptures. He matured them. And then he mobilized them. Sending them. To make and mature and mobilize disciples that would multiply true and right worship in the world. But this isn't some new strategy that comes after his life. Like this is a common theme across his work, across his ministry. 
This isn't some afterthought that Jesus comes up with. In Luke chapter 9, just as an example, Luke chapter 9, the, the gospel account that we've been studying for the last two and a half years. He called the twelve together, verses 1 and 2, chapter 9. He called the twelve together, gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Chapter 10, just a few verses later, a few uh, days, months, weeks, weeks, months later. Luke chapter 10, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. He was a sending Savior. He was always sending. It was never about him being the one that had to go. He was always making disciples, maturing them and mobilizing them that they become part of his mission. Of making disciples. Before he was tried, arrested, and crucified, John records a prayer. It's most often called the high priestly prayer. You know what he says in the middle of that prayer? Speaking to his father. John 17, 18 says, As you sent me into the world. He says a lot of other things, but in reference to what we're studying today, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He's committing to his father before he dies to send his people in the same way he's been sent. He is worshiping through his obedience to the father to send others to bring others to worship him. Then after his death, before his ascension into heaven, we have this passage that we're reading, John chapter 20, but it's not an isolated event. Repeatedly, we have him telling his disciples to go make disciples. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, one of the more famous, one that we've studied uh, uh, deeply here. He says, and Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means everything I say is to be obeyed. All authority belongs to me. It's been given to me. He says then, go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Regardless of whatever command comes after him saying, all authority has been given to me, there's an expectation of obedience in the very next command. Go and make disciples. This wasn't a suggestion. It's a command. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. What's beautiful is in this, he's saying, go. He's sending them to do what? Make disciples. Mature disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe Maturing them, growing them, seeing them grow up in the faith. Grow up in worship so that they can honor God with their whole life. And by the way, teaching them to observe is the same thing as saying, hey, by the way, send them to. Because the command I told you to go therefore and make disciples is, is the command I expect you to send them with. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. We are not alone in this. Acts 1.8, on the mountain just before he ascends to heaven, the disciples come to him and they're asking him about the kingdom. Is it time now for the kingdom? Are you ready to establish your kingdom? Are you ready to put on your crown and sit on your throne? And he says, whoa, you, you don't need to worry about times and days. You, you, you got the wrong thing in mind. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Why would they be witnesses? To make disciples that will turn and make disciples, make disciples that will mature and then mobilize 
to make disciples so that God's worship is multiplied in the world. And here we are studying this passage in John and the very first time he gathers or he appears to his disciples who have gathered, it's likely 10. We know Thomas isn't there. We know Judas isn't there. It's likely the 10 apostles. And the very first time he shows himself to them all together, he commissions them for the mission that he has been working and now is calling them to continue. Jesus started this pattern and intends it to continue after his ascension and until his return to be Christian. To be Christian is to be sent by Jesus. I'm not, I'm not saying that we become Christian by being sent. I'm saying that it's equivalent, that there's no distinction to be made. You can't say I'm Christian and not sent. You can't say I'm sent and not Christian. They're one in the same. To be a Christian is to be a sent one. To be a Christian is to be a little Christ who lives and emulates and images Christ. To be a Christian is to be sent by Jesus to make disciples that make disciples that multiply his worship. Here's the thing. If we are actively involved in this process of making disciples that will mature one day to mobilize and, and make disciples, if, if we are not, let me... I'm saying that wrong. If we are not actively involved in this, then we have somehow lost sight of the very central purpose that Jesus has placed on us. And I think that's the greatest problem that we face today as God's people. We think of this mission as some, oh, that's something for professional people to do. It's something I'll get around to. It's not really necessary to be a Christian. I don't really need to do anything. I just show up at church and continue to just absorb the teaching. Man, Seth, man, he can really preach, so, so I'll just, I'll be better for it. That was a joke. I was like, come on, you guys, I, just, I did that two weeks ago, and you guys just sat and stared at me. Either you agree with me, or, or you think, man, that guy's arrogant. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus didn't establish us, send us to establish comfortable lives on this earth while we're waiting for him to return. You get that, right? He never said, go and establish your own kingdom in this world. He never said, go and make a comfortable, easy life for yourself. He never once said, you are now free to do as you please and rule yourself. He sent us. In the same way that he is sent. What does that mean? Five things real quickly. Christians are sent in the same way as Jesus. We aren't told to do something different. We aren't given a, a whole new set of instructions. We, we're to just do what he did in the way that he did it. And it's an incarnational ministry. I'd like you to learn and, and remember this word incarnational because this is not about isolation. It's not about us withdrawing from the world and making sure that we don't touch them in any way because if we touch them... We become like them, right? Like we're scared. I'll never forget hearing a pastor tell a story about having gone to the ball field and some guy spilled his beer on him and he felt so filthy. Not because he got beer spilled on him, but because this guy's sin got on him. Like that's the way he felt, right? The beautiful thing about Jesus is that he was walking around and touching uncleanness and instead of becoming unclean, he made people clean. Like the leper who... who 
by all rights, had no business being in the village that he was in. This leper walks in and he's like, "Uh, I got to get to Jesus. I got to get to Jesus. And when Jesus reaches down and touches him, you can almost hear a gasp in the crowd because that should have sent Jesus out of the city because now he was unclean. But what happened was the lepers made clean. The hope of our world is not us isolating from it, but incarnating in it, bringing God's image, God's presence into it, so that they could see him and recognize his glory and turn and worship him. The worst thing we could do for the people we live around is isolate from them. The worst thing we could do in this world is is try to shove all of our holiness and our righteousness and our love for God inside the walls of this building. We incarnate his presence in this world in the exact same way that Jesus did. You want to know how to practically do that? Read the Gospels. I don't have time to tell you all the practical ways that that can be worked out, but read the Gospels. Go involve yourselves in the lives of people who are hurting and bring them the Gospel incarnating his image and his presence in the world by going and being in it. As he said in his, in his uh, high priestly prayer that we are in the world, but we are not of it. He expects us to be there. Christians are sent in the same way Jesus was sent. Christians are sent for the same purpose as Jesus. This passage tells us that he's not giving us a new message and a new mission. He's not giving us some different thing to do. We are simply continuing his work. And if you remember the words of Matthew, we're not doing it alone. He's with us to the very end of the age. We are sent with the same message to proclaim the same message and accomplish the same mission as Jesus. Make disciples. That mature and mobilize to make disciples. Make disciples that unite together, serving each other selflessly, proclaiming the gospel together, that they mature each other and mobilize to reach more. And, 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 and here, let me just give you a practical statement, just one little practical statement. This is how you can do it. I don't know the gospel to tell somebody. I don't, I don't know how to proclaim the gospel. Just talk about what God's doing in your life. Bear testimony to the good things you see God doing. And then bring them here. Every week we express the gospel in our songs of worship. You heard it this morning. Over and over and over you heard it this morning of the grace of God for sinful people. We are devoted to preaching the word week in and week out. And when we finish regardless of whether it's a, 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 an indicative statement, a, a sermon of, of preaching the facts, or whether it's a sermon that's calling us to go to action, when we finish, we stop and we remember the broken body, shed blood of Jesus Christ that establishes our righteousness and our access to the King. The gospel is proclaimed here every week. So let them see what God is doing. Let them hear what God is doing. And then bring them here and let us be a part of telling them what God is doing. And if you don't want to bring them here, they're not going to like church. This is going to be too much for them. Seth's a little too loud. He's a little confrontational. Bring them to your community group. Let them see the gospel at work among God's people. 
so that they can see that this isn't just something we say. It's something that intrinsically changes us and makes us new. Christians are sent in the same way that Jesus was sent. Christians are sent for the same purpose as Jesus. And Christians are sent with the same priority as Jesus. The same priority as Jesus. Now, I, I think the previous two points are easy for us to agree upon, right? Like, okay, that, we've heard that so many times. We, we know that's true. At least we can easily agree upon them, even if we don't implement them at the same level in our own lives. But, but this prioritization, but it's a little more difficult. See, we often think that God's mission is intended for those those, those really good people, those really saintly people. And if that was the case, I wouldn't be here. I'm just going to tell you. Get inside my skin. Let me get close enough that you, you hear how my, how my flesh works against me. We think that, oh, when I attain that level of maturity or that level of righteousness... Then I'll, then, then I'll participate in the mission. Then I'll have something to offer. Man, when did Jesus send his disciples? Not when they were ready. <laughs> Not when they had met, met, met the risen Lord. Not when they had been fully enveloped by the Holy Spirit. When they were just beginning to walk with him. Go, I'll give you power and I'll give you authority. Then we, th- we think we're, we're going to attain it someday. We're going to grow to this place where we're, where we're actually able to accomplish his mission. That's, a, that's about us. It's a bit depending on our power, depending on our, our ability. Some of us think, well, once I get the right job, like, okay, I've got to finish school. I've got to get through college. I've got to get the right job. I've got to get the right vocation. And once my life gets settled in my vocation, then I'll have this time on the, on the side that I can give to God in his mission. Will you? If you're not giving your life to him now, what makes you think you'll give it to him later? Some of us want to get our family established. Once my kids are grown, that's when I can be involved in God's mission. Once, once I don't have the response, well, why isn't God's mission central to the theme and purpose of your life at home with your children? I'm all about committing yourself to your family. It's the first place of ministry. But if God's mission of his worship and his glory being made known is not the central theme of your home, then what is? Some of us think when we get our finances squared away, then that's when we can kind of bless other people. That's when I can go ahead and give some of this. I got to get my, I got to get my, Life in order, my finances in order. I gotta make sure my 401k is right. I gotta make sure I got the right TV sitting in my living room, the right car in my driveway, the right house to live in. I assure you, there will always be something else. There will always be something that breaks that needs to be fixed. You will never feel like you have enough until you begin to commit your money to the Lord. And let him show you that you have more than enough. I, I, love, I love giving and being generous. I couldn't always say that. I mean, I'm not kidding you. Like Amy, my wife, has taught me 
what it looks like to be generous. I, was, I grew up with nothing. Single, single mom, five kids to feed. We were like living off of relatives because we didn't have jack. If they hadn't paid our, 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 our phone bill, I'm sure they were, paying our phone, they were paying our mortgage at least. We didn't have people paying our mortgage. We'd have been homeless. As an adult, I was a single dad, just barely scraping by. I was always looking for people to give to me. And so when it looked like I was supposed to give to others, I was, I was wrestling with that idea, like not wanting to let go, like, oh, yeah, you can have it, but then, you know, squeezing tight so that when they would take it, it was. Man, to learn to be generous. In fact, in our house, one of the decisions, one of the reasons Amy has continued to work is not because she has to, but so that we can be extremely generous. Part of the mission that we live on, part of our desire. This is not about me, though. I'm only generous. My wife is only generous because we have been, we have received much generosity. See, a lot of us think that we're supposed to put things first and then finally attach his mission. That is not at all what Jesus did. That is not at all how he prioritized his life. Bruce Milne, in his commentary on this passage, I think said it very well. I wanted to share this quote with you. He says, here's the paradox of Christian ministry. And, and here's the reality of what Jesus did for, on our behalf. We find freedom insofar as we permit his enslavement of us. We bring life to others to the, to, the, to the degree which we give up our own. We have authority and power in the measure to which we are willing to become helpless. You see, this is the paradox. Is that when we give ourselves to the mission of God, that's when everything else begins to make sense. That's when we experience the peace that we all long for. That's when we experience the understanding of our purpose and place in this world. That's when we begin to, to, to resonate with joy because that's when we find ourselves. The paradox of Christian ministry is, as Jesus said it, to gain life, we must lose this one. To find freedom, we must give ourselves completely to him. We want happiness in life. We must give up happiness from this world and find our happiness in Christ. Prioritizing his mission just as he did. And until we do, until we do, we will always be searching, and everything will leave us wanting. Christians are sent in the same way Jesus was. Christians are sent with the same purpose as Jesus. Christians are sent with the same priority as Jesus first, right? Like, it's not something to add on. This is priority number one. This is how we give our lives in worship. You might say we can't worship if we're not involved in his mission like if you've lived your life six and a half days this week for yourself and then think that you've come to worship, we'll have to let God be the judge of that. Will he call it worship? I don't know. But I know how he paints a picture of a life of worship. It's one saturated with a priority for his mission of his worship. Christians are sent with the same authority as Jesus. 
Father sent Jesus. That's what he says. The Father sent me as he sent me. Now, God the Father is ultimate authority, right? Like that's the picture here. God the Son is willfully giving himself to God's, the Father's plans. A lot of discussion about this, a lot of arguing about when that began, whether it began in eternity past or after he took on flesh. I I think at this point, it's not... If you've heard that debate, if you're wrestling with that idea, we can talk about it later. But the reality is this. Recognize that Jesus is saying, the Father had a plan and he sent me. And I obeyed him. And as he sent me, now I'm sending you. Now remember, who has the authority? Who has the authority? Jesus. And as he was sent with the Father's authority, and as he was given his Father's authority, we are given his authority. Authority. So long as we're working to fulfill his mission. We don't have authority to go establish our own mission. We don't have authority to go establish our own kingdom or grow our own kingdom or make our lives more important than anyone else's. We have authority to go preach the gospel and call people to repentance and faith. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. We have authority to go into the world and serve them with the intention of preaching the gospel to them. We have authority to say that this is God's way. Only Jesus. It's it. There's no other way. I have every authority to go into these villages in Senegal. You have every authority to go into these villages in Senegal, into a Muslim culture, and tell them Islam will lead you to hell. But if you'll trust in Jesus, you can be forgiven and live with him forever. We have all the authority that's necessary because we have Christ's authority to proclaim that message. We have every authority to talk about this exclusive faith in one Christ, this exclusive gospel. We have every authority. We have every authority we need to preach this gospel because we've been given that authority by Jesus Christ. And when we speak with that authority, we have the authority to forgive or not forgive. We don't have the time to do it, but, but this really finds its roots in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Jesus is talking to his disciples. I'd encourage you to write that down. Go look at it. He's talking to his disciples. He asks, who, who do you say I am? Peter steps up as the mouthpiece. He, it's what he does. He's the mouthpiece. And um, he, he says, uh, you're the Christ. You're the Son of God. And, and Jesus says to him, nobody showed you this. This isn't some revelation of man. This is revelation from above. God, the Father, has shown you that I'm the Christ. He says, on this rock, your name is Peter, which is Petros, right, in Greek. On this Petro, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. On the rock that you have become, by the confession that I am the Christ, by the faith that made you who you are, this is the rock on which the church is built. Peter's not the rock, the confession of faith. The confession of the revelation of what God has shown him. And by that confession... He says, I give you the keys of the kingdom. What you loose on earth is loose. What you bind on earth is bound. He turns around and he says the same thing just a couple of chapters later, Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 20, in the process of confronting and, 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 and dealing with church discipline and calling people to repentance. Jesus says to the church, not just to Peter and the apostles, but to the church, to the gathered church, he says, I give you the authority that what you bind, I give you keys to the kingdom. What you bind on earth is bound. What you loose on earth is loosed. And then we see the same thing coming out here in this passage. Is what you forgive is forgiven. What you withhold forgiveness from is withheld. 
But it's not our authority to offer forgiveness. It's the authority of Christ to say you're forgiven when you confess him as Lord and Savior. When you confess that Christ is the Son of God. When you believe in your heart that Jesus is raised from the dead and you confess that he is the Son of God, you are saved. You're forgiven. We have every authority to celebrate with someone as a forgiven person as they express faith in Christ. And we have that authority because it was given to Christ to to give to us. It was given to Christ by God the Father. We are sent with the same authority. And we are sent with the same power as Jesus. Now I've talked a lot about our part to play in this. Like what we're called to do. I'll just use my, 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 my role to preach week in and week out. All I can do is make sound waves bounce off your eardrums. It's all I got the power to do. I can study my tail off. I can preach the best sermon. I can, I, 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 I could be, I want to be careful. I, I could prepare and preach the best sermon ever, ever preached, better